If anyone is thinking of trying to address this issue and create change, and if you consider yourself rational, and if you consider yourself interested in data, and if you consider yourself interested in numbers, your first question presumably should be, how are we going to effectively reach more women? The Rational View is a weekly series hosted by me, Dr. Alan Scott, providing a rational, evidence-based perspective on important societal issues. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Rational View. I'm your host, Dr. Al Scott. On this episode, we're lucky to have a popular environmental figure from Australia on the show to talk to us about his efforts to mitigate climate change and fight fossil fuels through a strong nuclear advocacy program in Australia where nuclear energy is illegal. It's Dr. Ben Hurd. And before we go to the interview, I'd just like to say thank you for listening to the program. If you like it, please hit like on your podcast app and please share it with your friends, talk about it and come visit us at the Facebook group, The Rational View, where you can discuss with the experts all of your questions regarding the podcast. Dr. Ben Hurd is recognized as a leading voice for the use of nuclear technologies to address our most pressing global challenges. It certainly didn't start that way. Back in the day, he was a member of environmental NGOs and shared their basic objections to nuclear technologies. After completing a master's in sustainability, he worked in major projects in climate change, but there was just no solution on offer to match the scale of the problems at hand. So instead of continuing his objection to nuclear technology, he shut his damn mouth about it for a couple of years and did some learning. That was the start of pathway of writing, presenting, advocating, and evermore learning about how you can reinvent the future using all our knowledge and ingenuity. Ben was awarded his doctorate from the University of Adelaide in 2018, where he examined clean energy supply with a focus on nuclear technologies. He has presented his research findings at conferences around Australia and the world. He founded Bright New World in 2016 to provide a new organization for people who want pragmatic, compassionate, and science-based environmentalism, in particular, that values the role of nuclear technologies. Ben lives in Adelaide, South Australia, where he works in the private sector on energy and asset performance projects. He features as one of the global voices in the documentary, Juice, How Electricity Explains the World. Ben, welcome to The Rational View. Thanks, Al. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, you're uh, a well-recognized vo pro-nuclear voice in Australia, and uh, your work with Bright New World has been uh, well-received amongst nuclear circles. Uh, I just recently heard that Bright New World is no longer. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Bright New World and, and what you're planning? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Bright New World was um, an environmental NGO that existed in Australia from about about 2016. And that was our effort to contribute an, um, an organizational voice to these arguments. We uh, had reached a point in, in Australia where I had been very active for a lot of years, um, writing, commentating, presenting, delivering, um, and had some, a healthy following um, but then when there were, were processes that needed contribution and input, the absence of an organization actually was beginning to bite a little. And it was the, uh, the guy who went on to become the managing, uh, the general manager, uh, Dane Eckerman, at, w at one point during a, a Royal Commission in Adelaide said to me, you, you really need an organization because we really need 
your voice to have a seat at a table here and, and you haven't got one. So it was an attempt to fill um, that role. And I was particularly proud of it because whilst it did have a focus on nuclear technologies, we articulated a much broader vision of building a brighter future based on what we know how to do in, in all respects. And the fact is, um, so much of that comes can be reduced to the availability of plentiful clean energy. That that really is one of the absolute cornerstones of being able to build a better future for everybody. It meant that nuclear technologies was a big focus for us, as well as operating in Australia where those technologies were prohibited um, in terms of being an, uh, an organisation with limited means and um, wanting to have the maximum uh, maximum um, impact. Sorry. For, for the time that we had, it was a, a strong avenue to pursue. So we pursued that strongly. Now, unfortunately, good things come to an end and we were operating in a very difficult context here in Australia in terms of that prohibition. It, it's, it's a tough place to, to work like that. A generally weak philanthropic culture in Australia. Um, and, you know, we put in several good years, but ultimately the the, the voluntary labour that was behind it was, was unsustainable. So we... I'm really proud of the contributions we made. We're really proud of being able to represent the the very loyal people that, that um, were supporting us for a long time. But we've had to say it's time to end that. The good news there, I feel, is that the workload is shifting. The conversation is shifting. There is still going to be a lot of work happening in Australia and around the world. It's going to be of a different type now. Uh, so in the 10 years that I've been involved in the space, the conversation globally and in Australia shifted a lot, and I'm really happy about that. Yeah, you've had a significant impact, and I think your influence is, is well received. So, what was there any particular um, event that caused you to realize that it's time to change, or is it, what brought on this change? There were there there were a series of triggers that were working against my my underlying position. You could say something that was informative was in uh, the professional consulting I was doing. Um, it was in the height of the Australian drought in the, or the millennium drought, it was called. It sort of went from around about the turn of the century all the way through to about 2010. Uh, and it was extremely severe. And so Australia was needing to build uh, desalination plants really, very quickly um, to safeguard water supplies, not just in, in regional areas, but to our major cities. Um, we were working on the Victorian desalination plant um, to serve Melbourne's water supply and a government commitment had been made to uh, make sure that that plant was carbon neutral. I happened to end up being one of the main people who was driving the spreadsheet for just how that commitment was was going to be met. Um, that included all of the embodied energy and all of the, uh, the materials and the concrete and then, of course, the, the really large quantity of electricity that a desalination plant uses every year. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Victoria, the uh, the power supply is um, predominantly brown coal, so it's it's mm -hmm. as polluting from a greenhouse perspective as it can get. So running that spreadsheet and looking at the amount of energy for one new large and quite essential industrial facility and what it would require in renewable energy to offset the um, impact – just helped to bring home the scale of the challenge for me. I, I, I'd been struggling up until that point to, to really get my head around how much energy society is consuming mm -hmm. and where it's going and what it's for. Um, and that helped me realize and go, oh my gosh, if that's just for one new desalination plant, just how big is this challenge? And I started sort of 
looking into that more and more. It's daunting. Yeah, it is. It is. And another was um, trying to do a carbon neutrality project. So carbon neutral was you know, a big trend, a big fad in sort of sustainability and environmentalism. It still exists, but but not as as prominently as it was at that time. And so we were looking at helping a single, again, a single facility gain accreditation under that for um, its operational emissions, its um, embodied emissions, et cetera. It happened to be a large, a large car park in, um, in downtown Melbourne. And from that point of view, what I saw was the administrative challenge of trying to use those vehicles and those approaches to addressing climate change. And it was an incredibly high administrative burden and not without reason because you've got to verify those things. They've got to be really robust or they're worthless. You know, carbon neutral certification needs to mean something and you can't just hand it out. Hmm. But the administrative burden of doing it for just one facility was really high. So I'm looking at sort of two of the three solutions that I sort of had on the table, renewable energies and carbon neutrality, that general trend and going, this doesn't seem like it's going to be enough. In fact, by quite a long shot. And hmm. fortunately, I'd also had a little bit of information about nuclear that I hadn't completely rejected um, earlier in my journey. Uh, and so I just sort of, uh, as you said in the intro, I just sort of battened down the hatches for a little while and stopped having such an opinion to myself through a fairly deliberate process. And then there was a fairly catalyzing moment where I'd largely made up my mind and I went to a debate that was being held at the University of Adelaide with uh, Barry Brook, who was a professor there, a uh, very well-known blogger, and a guy called Tom Blees, who uh, wrote a book called Prescription for the Planet, has gone on to, to be you know, very sort of influential. Um, and they were presenting the nuclear case, and there were a couple of um, people presenting the anti-nuclear case. One of them was a man called Mark Diesendorf, who... I had in, in recent years until then been referencing quite heavily in my work. You know, I'd been reading his books and, and referencing his work. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, another man, um, Dave Noonan from the Australian Conservation Foundation who was standing in for Helen Caldicott. So I got to watch these two protagonists go at it you know, in, front of an, in front of an audience. Mm-hmm. And the, the standard of argument was just so much higher. It was so much higher from the nuclear camp and particularly when I saw Dave Noonan really cherry pick um, a sentence from Tom's book and throw that out to the audience. And why that really got me is I'd been so antagonized about the way climate change denying had worked and the arguments that had been used in that and the fact that you can always pick back the the threads, actually read the sources and go, you're lying, you know, or you're cherry picking. Mm -hmm. And so I'd picked up those skills from – unpicking what was going on in the climate change conversation. Right. And then I saw the anti-nuclear proponents do the exact same thing. Hmm. And at that point, at that point, I really went, okay, I, I'm done. I can't identify with that anymore. That team's not my team. Can't do that. Um, so that was, that was a, a sort of important moment. Um, and from there, look, I made friends with Barry Brook. Um, I think he thought I was a bit odd coming up and, and wanting to, to talk to him about nuclear power. But he, he eventually realized I could maybe be quite useful. And we sort of double teamed for a few years and um, started doing presentations. And uh, he was he was very influential. Ended up being the, the PhD supervisor. Yeah. Oh, very good. So what was your, what was your uh, PhD thesis topic? Well, we were looking at 
the role of nuclear patent technologies in clean energy in the 21st century, and we wanted to build up the argument towards that. The concluding chapter was doing some time series modelling of the Australian national electricity market, trying to demonstrate a low-cost, um, an optimised low-cost, very reliable, dependable and very low-carbon system blending wind, solar, nuclear and hydroelectric technologies, leaving in um, some gas to do the uh, a little bit of the load filling where, where something else was, was not available or was cheapest. So basically, we, we um, spread the wind and solar all across to the eastern seaboard of Australia. We took the time series data of the, of the wind and solar. And uh, we sort of went about it the, the other way and we sort of said, um, we actually know that nuclear power could run Australia 100% on a technical basis. That's not in question. They, they operate that way. Australia is a great source of uranium. Indeed it is. It absolutely is. So we, we wouldn't have any shortage of fuel, certainly not. And so we said, well, let's let's set the nuclear the size of the nuclear sector at, at our peak demand. Um, now, that will be a very inefficient nuclear sector and we'll have the model cost to that. And then what we'll do is we'll run it down increment by increment, you know, 50 megawatts at a time all the way down to zero. And we will backfill in with amounts of wind and solar to cover the difference and run the time series profile of that. And then we'll use gas to fill what the wind and solar isn't meeting. And we'll keep running it all the way down to zero and we'll ask the model to tell us what's a, what's a good cost op, um, optimal supply of that. Okay. Um, which turned out to be, you know, which was which was interesting, sort of looked at, you know, no matter, no matter how you push things around, it was hard to um, make wind and solar do more than 40% of the job. And that was taking um, into account the, f we were pretending that we had perfect transmission all across Australia and we don't. So it was a fairly generous model in that regard for, for using the, the renewables. But that was the culmination of it. I mean, the supervisors pressed me to really build up the case through the preceding chapters. So, you know, we wrote a chapter all about the South Australian energy transition. They asked me to, to look at what had happened here because we were moving quite fast. We wrote a chapter which became a very well-known paper called Burden of Proof, where we looked at the uh, body of literature in 100% renewable studies which was sort of had, had proliferated to about 20 or so studies. Um, and I was finding that it, with each of these studies that I would read, it, the sort of the introduction or the abstract would, would, would reference other studies and, and um, create the impression that there was a, a coalescing body of literature that was ever, ever more certain that this was the case. Or oh, you need to look here, there's this citation, this citation, this citation. Mm -hmm. So we actually, we came up with some criteria for the feasibility of those studies and we put them all through a screening process and um, wrote a really well received paper on that sort of finding that actually every single one of them is pretty deeply flawed. Some of them are high quality, but um, high quality in, in only one element and missing missing others. Others are just really, really poor. Um, and also very internally inconsistent. So they would be speaking of a body of literature and some would be outright rejecting hydroelectricity. Others would be massively dependent on hydroelectricity. Some would be uh, saying the biomass is unacceptable. Others would have enormous dependence on biomass. So it was actually a, a body of literature that's actually a fair bit of conflict about, about how, to, how to do this. And many of them beginning their analyses by assuming really monumental changes in the energy efficiency of society. So. Hmm sort of rigging the starting point to suit the outcome. Right. So you assume energy efficiency or loss of load requirements as your first starting point. Yep. And then you assume something else, whether it's Jacobson and his um, 
10 times increase in hydro capacity for storage. Mm-hmm. Or I guess he's got a new one out now where he's using electric vehicle batteries for his storage. Um, and then you go from there, right? It seems yeah. it seems very random. I, I don't. I haven't seen a, a case that holds together yet. I haven't looked at uh, Jacobson's most recent stuff yet, but it seems to be they're they're assuming a conclusion and trying to find a solution. Uh, well, uh, entirely. Uh, look, that's 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 exactly it, and that for me is problematic in all sorts of ways. That, that's a very high risk, low probability of success. I mean, if if your first starting point is that you're going to fundamentally remake the world around you to suit your outcome, i.e. every building will will get retrofit to this level of, of energy efficiency. Everyone will be using this car. Everyone will do this and it's all going to happen really quickly. And and even if, if any one of those um, assumptions, this is generally the case, any one of those assumptions would have some level of, of rigor behind its engineering achievability. There's a huge difference between being able to demonstrate that something can, can be done on an engineering basis or on a physical basis and actually rolling it out society-wide. So then if you sort of have the combination of, of several of them that need to advance forward altogether, often then creating interactions and interdependencies between those assumptions, again, to suit the supply system that your academic paper then intends to build and demonstrate and show as feasible – You've just completely departed from the real world. Like it's, it's, it might be a nice world that you've built in your paper. It's just not the real world. And as far as dealing with climate change goes, that for me is a hugely low probability of success. Whereas a nuclear power-driven system works. It's proven amply proven and demonstrated to work. That's a significant differentiator. I think in a lot of these papers, and I've been, you know, I'm trying to keep abreast of the literature because obviously technology changes and, and cost structures change and technology, new technologies come online all the time. And, you know, most of these people say, obviously you need some sort of a battery, some sort of an efficient battery to make a variable power source realistic. <clears throat> and if you can do that, if you can do that, then that gets past the feasibility issue. That says nothing about the the cost effectiveness as compared to other uh, existing solutions. And that's the next step in fantasy that you have to take. I mean, you know, it's, it's like saying fusion power is going to save us. And, you know, it's been 20 years out for, for 100 years now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I can say that, yes, look, they're starting up much bigger fusion reactors and it's, it's just over the horizon. Fusion is going to come along and save us and it's going to be cost effective because it doesn't have, you know, it all it uses is water, right? It's, it's, it's just easy to do. And, but no one should believe me if I say that because it hasn't happened. And there's always risks in scaling up to grid level and we have a solution that we know that works and there's only one that (laughs) i think so far that i've seen that holds together pretty much the you know when we were writing burden and proof we were keen to distinguish between what we were calling feasibility and and what we you might call viability and the terms get Mm. used pretty yeah that's key pretty interchangeably um and we sort of worked on our definition to say we we are trying to use a very tough and pure definition of feasibility by looking at the studies and saying, show us that you have shown your audience that this will work in a physical sense, that it can work. And so that was an example where virtually all studies at that time, now they've changed this and this has been changing the literature, I think, you know, largely driven by 
by our work, um, were not thinking about frequency control in electrical grids. So they would assume a, a complete transition to asynchronous wind and solar gener generation, and they'd have no idea how they were going to stabilize the grid. Mm -hmm. They'd have no idea how they were going to maintain the inertia. The whole thing would just collapse and fall over. So mm -hmm. it's not that that's necessarily physically impossible. There are ways of doing it. Batteries can contribute to that. Synchronous condensers can contribute to that. But they all add cost, they all add complexity, and they all add challenge. And what you're really doing is services that, that have traditionally been provided from one unit, just a, a spinning turbine driven by either coal, gas, nuclear, or hydroelectricity providing a whole gamut of services to the grid, then need to be disaggregated into a whole lot of component parts and then rebuilt into a system. And they weren't doing that rebuild into a system. Now, for basic feasibility, you've got to show that you've mapped out how that's going to be done so that the system will will hang together and will work. Because it's awfully high stakes to break that apart without knowing how you're going to put it back together again. Now, so, so on a feasibility basis, we know that nuclear works really, really well, right? We, we've got 100%, pretty much 100% um, nuclear grids out there or very close to. Decarbonized grids. Yep. And some some blend of nu um, nuclear and, and uh, wind, solar and hydro works fine, holds together. Viability is different. Um, it's, you know, viability we're thinking is more like, is there a societal tolerance for the expense, the complexity, the level of organisation, the level of maintenance, um, that would be required to actually maintain and sustain this system that's being proposed, which is which is a slightly different thing. Now that might be you know, cause to think about the viability of you know the incredibly large build out of nuclear that would be required to decarbonise um, the world, both in um, electricity, in heat, and in you know, creating synthetic fuels, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We're talking about a huge quantity of energy and a huge nu nuclear build out now. The rate of build-out of nuclear has been pretty rapid historically in some jurisdictions. Is it really viable that we would we would expect those to repeat? Now, how viable is that that we that we would expect that to repeat in future? I think there are open questions there, and I think that's a good reason that we should be continuing to innovate um, our development of nuclear technologies towards things that are more fit for purpose and more likely to be viable as well as feasible in a broader range of markets just to make our success against the climate change challenge lower risk and and more assured. Yeah, we need to um, be very successful with, with what we do to get uh, to 100% uh, net zero, basically. And, and everything we do has to be you know very successful. And, and we need a mix. Uh, you have a much better chance of success if you have a, a, a diverse mix of sources, I think. Um, just a, on a risk assessment basis. Yeah, um, entirely. And that is just a really, a really curious artifact of those in the academic uh, world and those in the activist world whose, whose strategy appears to be a constraint of our options. And, you know, I'm pleased that in the 10 years that I've been involved in this, this issue, is definitely changing where there's uh, that is a hugely contested idea. It's hugely contested in academia, in science. It's more and more contested in, finally, in some of the uh, governance institutions like the EU with their recent sustainable finance taxonomy. Hmm. It's more and more contested in um, the environmental conversation. Um, you, you would have people like, uh, you know, Dave Roberts, um, Michael Liebrich, who would be, you know, less um, 
enthusiastic about nuclear technology as a solution than I, but really clear to their critics on that point that to shut them down prematurely, to not presume that we're going to build them anymore is, is simply foolhardy. And it is. The problem, I'll tell you what, I was thinking about rationality when, you know. When, You're in the right place. I'm in the right place. I was thinking about rationality and people had often said, or they will often say to me, is, isn't it irrational? Isn't the, the anti-nuclear position irrational, especially if you're concerned about climate change? Um, and it's often put in those terms. Having come from the anti-nuclear position, having come more from the traditional environmental position, I'm less persuaded that, that they are being irrational and I am more persuaded that they're being dishonest with themselves and with the outside world. Hmm. Because I think they are actually being quite rational in accordance with the values they actually hold, in accordance with the outcome and the sort of world they're actually interested in. I think anti-nuclear is extremely rational. You know, if you make nuclear work, if you make it work in this, the fullest expression of how good the technology could be, you make a world where people can just use electricity, right? Because um, it doesn't matter because there's virtually no environmental impact to doing that. That's not actually the world they're trying to make. That's not actually the world that's consistent with their values. They're the values behind it are not a, a, a fairly pure, we must decarbonize. It is a much more encompassing view of how people should behave, how the world should behave, how society should behave, quite driven by a bit of a sense of people not being such a good thing on the planet, uh, driven by a mindset of scarcity that there is not enough, driven by a bit of a guilt about being human and... Anti-nuclear makes a ton of sense in that point of view because nuclear just, in, in a sense, it solves too many of those problems. It's an appeal to nature fallacy, I think. Very much so. Very much so. You know, the, the idea that we might have fundamentally most of humanity just getting on with their lives and not thinking too hard about climate change, that for me is victory. <laughs> I think <laughs> if we had decarbonized and no one needed to think about it, that for me is a win. But for sort of the, the mindset that I'd come from and the, the philosophy that I'd come from, it doesn't feel like a win because you haven't changed people's minds. I don't really care too much about changing people's minds about climate change. I just care about zero emissions. So when you're sort of on that train that I'm on, nuclear becomes incredibly rational. You go, well, that it works. It ticks so many boxes because I don't need to pull apart everything else. I can more or less just do a technology substitution and a heck of a lot of the problems, air pollution, uh, and climate change are eliminated. Hmm. Uh, now, I call that progress, and I'm much more interested in, in progress than perfection, and I believe progress is an incremental um, process that, with, with uh, occasional large leaps, but, but ultimately it is always a, a walking forward pro, uh, process. It's not something we can hold hostage to every solution being solved all at once or no solutions can be, can be implemented. That, that makes sense. So I think I think anti I think anti-nuclear is awfully rational if you if you get to, to closer proximity to what the the underlying values are. Yeah, they they are not out to stop climate change. They are out to change the systems of society uh, to match their philosophy. Yes, and arguably climate change as a prominent issue came much later in the in the development of that philosophy and that worldview, and it, and it is kind of a vehicle for 
the expression and the implementation of those those other deeper values. If if we wanted to to stop climate change, nuclear is the silver bullet. I mean, we have we would have bipartisan support on both sides of the political spectrum for a nuclear solution. And we could rapidly decarbonize if we wanted to, and if we could get everybody on board, if you know, we get past that. I, that's a very interesting observation. I like your, your your thinking on the rationality behind the environmentalist position. Yeah, I mean, I've done the thought experiment and I've written about it that the nuclear was arguably invented a little too early. We got it a little before we needed it, mm. and um, you know, if we were where we were now at 420 or so parts per million, a world running on fossil fuels, realizing we were cooking the planet and desperately needing to fix it, and then someone invented nuclear fission, I said, okay, how about this? The fuel's a million times denser, and this is just the first iteration of it. It can end up being 10 million times denser. We do have to mine it, but it's incredibly low impact. The waste product all remains contained where we've put it, in, an, in incredibly small volumes and it's plentiful and it's reliable and it can be put just about anywhere. I think we'd have that sort of huge bipartisan embrace of that, um, but it's burdened. It's it's burdened and sort of you know getting uh, getting the burdens off its shoulders is you know, part of the challenge. So it must be very frustrating in Australia where there is no nuclear and it's actually illegal. Um, to, to be in such a position of knowing the answer and not having the power to implement it. How is the nuclear lobby doing in Australia? What is there any progress? Are there any cracks? Yeah, there is certainly progress. It, it, it's born of pain. You know, Australia is now in a position where the world's energy supply is undergoing deep structural change and we're not that well placed to benefit from it. So not only are we extremely dependent on fossil fuels domestically, we have an enormous fossil fuel export industry. And arguably, that's entering structural decline. Mm -hmm. We are also a, a free market economy and our energy system is quite liberalized. And governments have been told by banks, banks that they invited into the, into the party, but I might add, in the process of liberalization, those same banks are now turning around and saying there will not be finance for a new coal-fired power station in Australia. Right? That's not going to happen. We are not taking that risk on our books for future policy. So we've got a huge um, estate of coal-fired power stations that are ageing and they are heading to, to retirement and they're being hastened to retirement by the influx of um, low-cost variable renewable energy. So we're heading for a heck of a pinch in our um, electrical system. Hmm. The plan, if, if you can call it that currently, is a really, really big transmission build-out and to keep building renewables. I think that's actually just going to enhance the pain because I think we're going to remind ourselves just how difficult it is to build very, very large transmission lines and lots and lots of them. So there um, is renewed talk about nuclear technologies in Australia, particularly in the last 12 months, um, and this is because we are finding that you know, having kind of no position on net zero is becoming increasingly untenable, particularly as China, Canada, the United Kingdom, the United States, Korea, um, Japan are all coming to the policy table with pretty clear positions on net zero. Um, we're, we're losing that excuse pretty rapidly. Mm. Um, and that energy pinch, we um, are going to need to... to make some policy change. 
if you combine that with what I mentioned before about the availability of fit-for-purpose technologies, then I think we've got um, a genuine chance of some near-term policy change. It is reasonable to say that we might never build gigawatt-scale nuclear in Australia. Um, there are some technical reasons why connecting a 1,000 megawatt single generating unit or a 1,200 megawatt single generating unit is difficult in Australia, and it relates to how spread out our grid is, um, how dispersed our population centres are, and the need to manage the loss of any single largest generator. Hmm. So the largest thing connected in, in Australia right now is only 750 megawatts, and there's one of them. The vast majority of the units are 300 megawatts and below, and we've got a grid that is, is sort of built for that. Very similar to Canada in that respect in terms of the spread out population and the, um, a few isolated areas that, that you know, just aren't served at all by grids. And right now they're on diesel. We've led, you know, in the north there's a lot of diesel communities or they're mines that are either hydro or diesel. And so Canada has gone into funding development of small modular reactors. And I'm very grateful. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm very grateful to them because Canada and Australia are quite um, are frequently seen as quite parallel countries. We've got a lot of political similarities, a lot of governance similarities, a lot of cultural similarities, and a lot of economic and geographic uh, similarities, uh, except that, that Canada is a lot colder and we're a lot hotter. But we've got a lot of the same challenges, and we also have very large resource sectors. So faced with, with the same suite of challenges, Canada's doing that thing, and that makes for quite an interesting example. And it also, we're able to point out, and that is probably going to succeed, and their remote communities are probably going to have cleaner, cheaper, more reliable power. Uh, ours won't. Their resources sector is going to have cheaper, um, more reliable uh, power that's uh, zero carbon, and so their um, export products are going to be welcomed into the world market more than ours. So the work that Canada is doing and the roadmap and the action plan there is, is I think, making it a, a lot more achievable for Australia to have a policy change because we will feel like there's a product at the end of that that is um, much easier for us to take on board and, and implement as part of our system. Nice. We have to be very careful about saying that this is going to be the solution for remote communities because many of these remote communities are, are native uh, communities. And Canada's past, of course, probably like Australia's, involves a lot of land exploitation on unceded native territory. Yep. And nuclear energy has been tarred with that brush in the past. And in, I know people in the industry are working to include extensive consultations with First Nations and citing of future mines and, and the possible uh, deep geological repositories that are being explored right now. Yeah. Um, so is there, is there uh, obviously that's an issue uh, that, that takes careful consultation uh, and it can't be imposed in the top-down way. We need to talk with these communities and, and you know, explore their needs and make sure that what we're offering is what they want. Is it, is it similar in Australia? It's utterly the same. We have the, the added pain and trauma that, that um, nuclear weapons were tested in the Australian outback, um, in the outback of South Australia. My home state. I didn't know. They were. The British Army, you know, with the cooperation of Australia, tested atomic weapons in um, uh, outback South Australia in a place called Maralinga. Um, this was not done with consent. This was not done with due, due care. Um, Australian Aboriginal people did suffer from this. So, yes, we have the same history of colonialism, the same history of dispossession, the same history of exploitation. Uh, and now we have communities living in, in remote areas where 
ironically, um, you know, where there are less means, their their power supply is, you know, diesel is expensive power and it's dirty and it's and it's less and it's less reliable with needing to track the fuels in. So you certainly, yeah, certainly the idea of hi, we've brought you the solution um, is not. Uh, appropriate is not going to work and has to be a bottom-up process of what would what do you want for the future of your community and how can this work for you and, you know and that's where again I look I, I am an optimistic person but I perhaps hope that um, the development and evolution of, of smaller and yet smaller devices in the nuclear um, technology front offers the opportunity for different models of ownership hmm. that can be much more inclusive of communities. So you, you you really might have community shareholder ownership or, you know, we have um, corporations and representative groups for um, First Nations people in Australia. They might be able to take it on as actual owners and operators in, in their community. I think there's a lot of appeal to the the environmental groups too that we were talking about and the, the politics of anti-nuclear yes. is, is a lot of it about the economic models of large corporations yes. dominating the energy supply. Yes, and let's be honest about that. That hasn't always worked out so well. You know, there have been and continue to be some pretty poor outcomes from corporate malfeasance. And the the ability to have a more inclusive uh, model of ownership is, I think, a real strength of of innovation in nuclear. And I just stress, you know, the the importance of processes is so high and can't be overlooked. I mean, something we have made progress on in Australia is to um, cite our low and, uh, and intermediate level nuclear waste repository because we do have a nuclear industry in Australia. We have a very good research reactor in, in Sydney that makes medical isotopes, makes dope silicon, um, does a lot of neutron beam research. Um, and we have a lot of legacy waste arisings from um, scientific research earlier. And we have no... Um, completed waste disposal pathway for radioactive waste. So we've been trying for decades and decades to site uh, a waste disposal facility. And in 2014, Barry Brook and I wrote uh, an article um, in the conversation, which was picked up really, really strongly, where we said yeah, the, the uh, clickbait headline was that nuclear waste is safe to store in our suburbs, not just the bush. And the point we went on to make is we can't begin from a paradigm of our nuclear waste disposal facility will naturally be located in remote outback Australia because why wouldn't you? Um, we were saying if we understand the hazards of this to be not all that bad, and we do, then it sends completely the wrong message to insist on sending to the, to the remotest parts of Australia. That's actually screaming out at people that this is incredibly dangerous and incredibly undesirable stuff. If we know how to control the hazard, and we do, we know how to characterise it, we know how to engineer for it, then it should be able to be sited in any industrially zoned location in any capital city. And let's start the process from there. Where the process ends is a different matter, but let's start it being very open about the siting of that. Now, fortunately, what happened was um, the government was thinking the same way. And I was invited to join the siting panel for our low and intermediate level waste repository. And they ran a voluntary siting process. So we issued, we put advertisements in newspapers all over the country. And we invited any private land holder with a suitable um, tract of land to offer it confidentially to the process for preliminary assessment. No obligations. Um, and uh, confidentially, just so that they could be involved in the process without needing to get too involved or too exposed. And if they wanted to proceed, um, we would then have a long list of sites. The response was 
tremendous. Um, we ended up with, I remember the panel was ha having a bit of a poll and we were thinking, oh, how many nominations do you think we'll get? Or eight, maybe 10. Mm -hmm. Double digits was feeling pretty positive. We got 28. So wow. there were 28 strong nominations from all over the country. It went then went you know through to a short list. It went through a long consultation process of three different sites, all of which had been volunteered from the landowners. And then the community did get involved. The local government did get involved, and it became a local issue. And they had the time to deal with it on a local basis. They had ballots to express um, their opinions on that, uh, and we got a really strong response from a community in South Australia called Kimber that voted 62% in favour for hosting the facility. That's great. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. And the part of it was, you know, they were not under an obligation here. They were being presented with an opportunity from which they could genuinely withdraw at any time if they were ready. There was a little bit of upfront um, uh, money brought to the community as a thank you, acknowledging that this was this is work we're putting you through. Um things were, were not tied. Now, they weren't being blackmailed or, or held to ransom for it. So, it's surprising what we do when we can run a process where we free people up from fe not feeling that they are being imposed upon. Um, then they take the time to really take the information in and they pay very close attention. And that was um, that was successful. So, I'm, I'm very pleased about that. Um, we're still grinding out some of the last bits of politics of that, but I'm, but I'm optimistic that that will, will go ahead. Wow, that's great. That's great news. So that that's somewhat positive. I think I think this you know things are trending in the right direction, and even on a global scale, I feel like you know the examples of Germany and California and some of these uh, areas that have you know shut down nuclear and have gone or tried to go renewable haven't really been working that well. I think that the carbon buildup is is continuing, and they're not building it fast enough to, to to make a big difference. So I think in general the message is 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 coming through to the people that are willing to look at the evidence. Um, but I I'm really interested in learning, you know, more about you know the communication wizardry and how to properly talk to people who have these uh, predisposed fear of nuclear, uh, you know, because let's face it, there's been decades of anti-nuclear lobbying that has been uncountered in the media, in the popular media. So mm, yeah. someone I, I talked to once said, you know, I think that, yes, there's a lot of anti-nuclear out there, but it's a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot in that. I think in my experience would in, would endorse that fairly well. Occasionally, it's a mile deep. <laughs> you know, there's a few people in the in the Mariana. There's a few people in the Mariana Trench. There, you'll 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 find them. But but that's a that's about right. Um, my experience with Australians, particularly over over ten years, is there's there's actually a lot of curiosity, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of objections are are that inch deep and the, the objection is actually really describing a curiosity. There's a lot of Australians out there feeling like, I think there's a lot more that I should know about this and I don't and I'm not really getting much of an opportunity but what I think about this is this and that's you know, something that you can always work with. My experience has been, you know, if, if there are any sort of particular rules I would apply to this is that we have to meet people where they are. We have to do our best to meet them where they are and, and go from there. You, you can't shout from a distance. And what I normally mean is try to find a way to connect on values. A values connection goes a hell of a long way. So 
knowing what your audience is. Is it is a is it a community group of some type? Are you are you in a particular part of the country? What's their history, uh, and what do they partic- particularly want out of the future? And this included when you know Barry and I would speak with um, rank and file members of the Australian Greens. You know we were invited to some of their branches to to talk about this. Naturally, we would lead very strongly with the fact that he and I are both in this and we have only got to this position because of our, our overriding concern about the environment, our overriding concern about climate change is what's driven us here. And then as we sort of would work through what we're doing and then it would move into the Q&A phase, some of that divide would open up between those who, who were more, a little more like Barry and I and those who probably didn't want a big solution that would just work. And at that point, you sort of need to carve that off and go, they're probably never going to be fans of nuclear technology because it's it's actually not addressing the the values that they're holding the, for the sort of world they want to see. But there's actually a heck of a lot of people that are are in this this middle ground where no, they they genuinely are concerned about climate change. They genuinely are concerned about air pollution. They genuinely do think nuclear power is still dangerous. They genuinely do think that nuclear radioactive waste is the worst, most intractable form of waste and we should never ever make any more of it and there are many of those people who if they feel that they can gain a a relationship of trust with someone they are happy to be um, relieved of those ideas they find that experience good Hmm. where they go you're telling me we can recycle nuclear waste and we say that's exactly what we're telling you yes we can it's proven, it's demonstrated, it's not commercial, and there are challenges to making it the, the dominant way of doing things, but there's absolutely a solution for that. to that. Most people are hugely happy to hear that, but they aren't going to hear that until they have made a decision within themselves that I want to listen to this person and, and hear more from them on what they've got to say. And that, that really starts with trying to come and meet them somewhere at a, a, at a place of respect. Um, diversity also really helps. Um, you know, nuclear hasn't been, historically has not been a diverse place. The nuclear spokespeople haven't been um, diverse. I'm getting less diverse by the day. Um, <laughs> I, used, I used to be a young, I used to be a young white guy. I'm turning into an old white guy. Um, so, uh, you know, I've done, I've done my best. One old white guy to another. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Okay. Um, so, you know, and I'm, you know, I, I kind of know that and, and I, made, I made, made the best of my thirties. Let's put it that way. Um, so we do need to be realistic about that and, actively seek to promote and develop those people in the community who, who can speak more eye to eye with with more diverse communities. I mean, I would point out um, it's, it's almost uncomfortably simplistic, but the polling just points out such a huge gender divide on this issue. Um, you know, every poll I've seen in every country where they um, look at the opinion about nuclear power and they include um, uh, distinction in gender, there can be as much as a 20 percentage point difference between men and women on this issue. So if anyone is, you know, and I was pleased I was speaking with someone about this in Australia just the other day, and they, and they were talking these terms. If anyone is thinking of trying to address this issue and create change, and if you consider yourself rational, and if you consider yourself interested in data, and if you consider yourself interested in, in numbers, your first question presumably should be, 
how are we going to effectively reach more women here? Mm-hmm. Because we can see that, that we can see that what's happened today hasn't really hasn't really reached. If we really believe in this and we really believe it's the right thing, and we, we obviously there are many, 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 many women who who are perfectly on board with that. The numbers say that too, but we're clearly not cutting through for such a large number. How do we address that? That is presumably going to um, come from from um, helping to bring along more and more women in the space that can that can address that and have that first initial connection. It's not that it's not that men can't. It's not that. You know, that that's not the way diversity works, but it certainly helps if we 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 can build diversity into the uh, into the communicators themselves. Yeah, that's definitely um, a key, and uh, you know, it's why I'm very impressed with uh, Zion Lights and her work in in the UK, uh, um, rallying uh, the youth and the female, <laughs> hitting both angles there. <laughs> That's great. It's look. It's a it's a tremendous asset from that point of view. Of course, it is. It it absolutely is. And I, again, it's one that I'm sort of. It was easy for me when I was at university, right? So that's just a fact, right? People people move into different abilities. I've now got the ability to speak to speak in different places. But what are we doing in the succession planning of this? You know, I love that. Um, Zion uh, Lights is doing great work. I love the Generation Atomic in the in the United States is mm-hmm. is working on that succession. They're working on on that that generational basis um, because that's that's incredibly important and and incredibly empowering. So this is good, and this has changed. That that is great. You know the the what we're talking about communities and bottom up and process. Um, you know, good energy collective in the United States with. Um, Jessica Lovering, Susie Baker, you know, yes, they're thinking yes. um, differently and creatively about the way to do these things. Um, Isabel Bomeki, um, you know, what a remarkable um, avenue of communication she brought through her TikTok videos. Amazing. You know, I contributed, yeah, I contributed some new ways to communicate in, in the efforts I've done. But these original ideas keep on coming, and that is so good, right? So, you know, she's done things I was never going to be able to do. So this is tremendous. So building that diversity is good. And it's funny we talked about the um, inch, uh, inch deep mile art. Mm-hmm. There's 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 another thing about pro nuclear advocacy which which I've spoken about, which is a little similar. Uh, we we can focus a little too much on building depth of commitment to nuclear when we actually need breadth. Getting this sort of societal change is more about broadening the support out across the populace into more groups of the populace, into different representative groups of the populace Mm -hmm. uh, until the point where it becomes a societal position and a no-brainer. A lot of the efforts of nuclear advocacy that I have seen can often be about trying to drive people to, to deeper and ever deeper levels of commitment and excitement and dedication and uh, to the technology. This can be really, really good for individuals. Um, it, can all, it also brings some risks of getting a little laboured and misses the opportunity to, to go more broadly. We actually, we actually just really need simple, broad support. We just sort of need more people to go, yeah, yeah, why not? You know, I, I don't need to be a global expert. On it. I don't need to understand mm-hmm. fast reactors, pyroprocessing, and I don't really need to understand molten salt reactors, and you know, I don't really need to understand. Yep, you know that, that that's not what I need. But but I've got the basics, and I'm on board. You know, and that's sort of you know that that breadth that we that we should be looking for. And no, I agree, and that's that's definitely what I'm hoping that we can achieve. So, so what's 
what's new for you? What what what's after Bright New World? What how are you going to get this breadth of uh, support? Well, I'm probably going to take a few deep breaths for 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 maybe a year or so. I've got you know um, personally speaking, exciting things happening, um, which which is great. So I'm looking forward just to focusing on me for for a little while. I do have some really good academic writing that I'm doing with Corey Bradshaw and and, and a team in a in a follow up paper uh, presently. So I'm looking forward to seeing some more peer reviewed. Uh, work. Fortunately, you know, I work for a, a consultancy company, and um, the work that we are that, that is coming across our table is is more and more overlapping with what I'm um, doing in nuclear technology. So, as I say, that interest in Australia is building, and globally, is building. So, I'm finding more and more avenues. That's the interesting thing, Al. It if I've learned something in ten years, the fundamentals don't go away and nuclear is a fundamental you know with the, the challenges that we've got in the world it's it's too fundamental to disappear it keeps coming back so uh, i'll be speaking at the climate smart engineering conference in australia uh in november that's a, a function of engineers australia i'll be representing my employer at, at that conference mm-hmm. to talk about small modular reactors for australia oh, what excellent. are the opportunities what are the challenges how is this still difficult um, what would what work would we need to do to create the context to accept those technologies? So the nature of my work is changing, but the I'm I'm fortunately finding that I'm getting more and more mainstream opportunities to to deliver on this work because the the appreciation that we probably need this technology is is growing in those directions, and that's that's bringing terrific opportunities for me. So I expect to be I expect that it's it's just going to become more and more a part of my day to day. And you know, if I could have known that ten years ago when I first stood up in front of a group of people in Adelaide and said I've changed my mind about nuclear power, you know, if I'd said that well in ten years time. Uh, you'll be working and, you know, a, a few days of your week every week are going to be about that, I would have been a, I would have been an awfully happy person. So <laughs> that's uh, probably what's coming up for, for me next. But, you know, uh, the other thing I've learned is everything always changes. So check in with me in a year. There will probably Excellent. be something new happen. There are a few people I owe phone calls to. They might have some interesting ideas. Well, we'll have to do that. I really appreciate talking talking with you uh, this morning or this evening, depending on what side of the world you're on. <laughs> and before I let you go, I have one question that I sometimes ask my guests. Sure. What's your favorite science fiction? Oh, my God. I can't believe you asked, you've asked me that today. Okay. Oh, it could be the one I'm reading right now, which is... A, a, a trilogy called Three Body Problem. Okay. Uh, and it's written by a Chinese author called Chichen Lu. So the first book is Three Body Problem. The second book is called The Dark Forest. The third book is called Death's End. I'm in the, I'm in the second book presently. And um, the, the scale of the ideas are, are wonderful. You know, it, it's sort of running all the, all the way from the days of the Chinese Revolution to several hundred years in future. Um, with some really dramatic ideas about um, human civilization, challenges we might face, um, the sociology of interacting with with alien civilizations. Ah, um, it's it's really interesting. It is. It's terrific and it's fascinating. I mean, he's the only Chinese author I've read to date, and it's it's um, it's actually really interesting to read an, an, an English translation of a Chinese author, and you can. You can almost get a sense of a different cadence to to the language and, and the thinking, which I suspect comes from being a um, an authoring brain that, that that's uh, learned 
to, to think and speak in, in an Eastern mindset more than a Western mindset. So they're wonderful books. So I'm going to, I'm going to cheat and just also mention that unless this one takes the crown, my favorite science fiction book is probably the wool trilogy by Hugh Howie. Well, that's great. Thanks again, Ben, for joining me on the rational view. That's been my pleasure. If you'd like to follow up with more in-depth discussions, please come find us on Facebook at The Rational View and join our discussion group. If you like what you're hearing, please consider visiting my Patreon page at patreon.podbean.com slash The Rational View. Thanks for listening.